Well, this morning we will be considering Melchizedek again from the book of Hebrews this time. And since this is Thanksgiving week, I thought it would be fitting to reflect on Melchizedek in gratitude for God's gracious provision of the Lord Jesus and for His Word, which is full of types and shadows of Christ. What are we thankful for? Christ and His Word, which reveals Him. And so our text this morning will be Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 to 3, but we will begin reading in verse 19 of chapter 6, just for context. Hebrews 6, verse 19. It says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham appointed, apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God as he continues a priest forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this revelation. We pray you'd help us to understand it. You'd illumine our minds by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So who is Melchizedek? I want to give us three answers. First, he's a king. Second, he's a priest. And third, and we'll spend most of our time here, he's a type. He's a type. So first, consider that he's a king. You can see it in verse 1, Melchizedek, king of Salem. And then verse 2, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. So last time we studied Genesis 14, and we saw that the kings went to war. Uh, The kings of the north came down, and they raided the kings of the south, and they captured Lot and took Lot away. And Abraham gets involved mainly because his nephew Lot has been taken off by these kings of the north. But one of the things that we see here in our text is that he's Melchizedek who, who meets Abraham after this war among the kings is called a righteous king. That means lawful. And one of the ways we can understand this is by imagining what his lawful reign in Salem would have looked like in contrast to the unlawful or unrighteous reigns of the kings of the north, particularly King Keterleomer and what he would have been like. So unlike the kings of the north under Keterleomer, a righteous king would never use his kingly authority to attack and murder other people in other cities, just to line his own, own pockets. Instead, a righteous king would encourage work and craftsmanship and trade with the other cities. He would seek the common good, as our confession says, and as the Bible teaches, without murdering others and stealing from them. 
Unlike the kings under Keterlomer, Melchizedek is righteous in that he wouldn't have captured people from other cities and then forced them into slave labor, which is a violation of the word of God and that it is man-stealing and then enslavement for no just reasons, breaking the Eighth Commandment. Instead, Melchizedek would rule the people justly. He would protect the rights of everyone in his kingdom without treating them as less than human because they're made in God's image. Unlike the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, which were two of the kings of the north in Genesis 14, a righteous king would not have allowed the wickedness and sexual perversion of these cities to overrun their kingdoms. A righteous king would rule according to the righteous law of God, summarized in the Ten Commandments. That means they would uphold God's marriage laws, which are taught in the Noahic Covenant, knowing that only a marriage between a one man and one woman can produce people and faithfully raise up the future generation. And so Melchizedek would have encouraged this and punished the sorts of violations that were so prevalent in Sodom. He was a just king. We don't know all the ways in which he was a just or a righteous king, but those are some things that we might imagine uh, in the ways in which he was just. But second, these verses tell us that he was a priest. Verse 1 says that Melchizedek was king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Verse 2 says, then he was also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So what's a good priest's role? He makes peace. He offers sacrifices and he prays for peace between God and men. And then he prays for peace between men. That's what a good priest does. In fact, the, the city Salem, where Melchizedek is priest, means peace, shalom, a city of peace. On the last day when Christ brings the new heavens and the new earth, all of creation will be characterized by what that word means, life and well-being, peace, harmony, fullness of life. We will beat our swords into plowshares. Our warfare will be ended. Only joyful work and worship that is shalom, love, joy, peace. As an earthly priest, Melchizedek sought peace in his city. He made sacrifices for the sins of the people to show what their sins deserved. He also prayed for the city of Salem, asking God for peace. Melchizedek also played the role of a priest when he encountered Abraham in Genesis 14. So, when Melchizedek appears and Abraham has just fought all these battles, Melchizedek brings bread and wine. And from the New Covenant, we can tell that that's more than just a symbol, that's more than just bread and wine, but just practically speaking, that would have been refreshing to Abraham. After a war, difficult conflict, he was feeding him, nourishing him, giving him good gifts caring for him like a good priest does. But from the perspective of the new covenant, we can see that this bread and wine served by Melchizedek are a type of the Passover feast of national Israel, which was yet to be instituted, a type of the sacrificial system of the old covenant, which was yet to come to full flower, a type of the death of Christ to establish the new covenant, bread and wine. It's also 
a foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper and the marriage feast of the land and of the Lamb in heaven. And so Melchizedek was a priest, and he was one who spoke a priestly blessing to Abraham. In Genesis 14, verses 19 and 20, it says that Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So this is calling down the one true God's blessing upon Abraham. No human king blessed Abraham. That's really why Melchizedek is in the story, is that Abraham wasn't going to benefit and build his life in this world based on the spoils of war that he had the right to. He denied them all. And instead, Melchizedek, the priest of the one true God, comes and says, blessed be your name, Abraham. So that all of Abraham's riches and blessings that come from that point forward can only be attributed to the one true God. And so there we've seen two things, that Abraham was a righteous king, sorry, Melchizedek was a righteous king, and Melchizedek was a priest who sought peace. But third, this passage teaches us that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Isn't this what Jesus is like? A righteous king and a priest who seeks and achieves peace. Verse 3 says, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, if you read that verse, what does that mean? Just look at it. Verse 3. Based on verse 3, many people are confused about who Melchizedek is. Some say, well, maybe he's Shem. That's one popular Jewish interpretation, is that maybe Melchizedek was Shem, the son of Noah. Others think Melchizedek was an angelic or celestial being. Who was he? Those views are very speculative. They don't have real evidence to support them, but Others have said that because of verse 3 right here in our text in Hebrews 7, Melchizedek must be a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. You heard that before? That Melchizedek is like the angel of the Lord, perhaps. We see pre-incarnate appearances of Christ in, in, the, in the Old Testament. Maybe Melchizedek is Jesus in a pre-incarnate form, God, the one true priest and king. Now, there are many people I respect who hold that view. I don't take that position, but I, and I want to tell you why. I don't think this is talking about, this isn't Jesus. Instead, something else is happening here. The writer of Hebrews is, is identifying Melchizedek as a type of Christ and is teaching us how to do interpretation of the Bible. He's showing us how to handle the scriptures, which we should imitate uh, but let me give you five reasons I don't think Melchizedek was Jesus. First, when verse 3 says Melchizedek was without father or mother or genealogy, it doesn't mean he literally had no father or mother. It means in the text of Genesis, there's no father or mother or genealogy mentioned. You see? But that's a type of Jesus because Christ had no, according to his divine nature, he had no human father. He is divine, the eternal Word of God. He has a divine Father, Word of the Father, the Son, the eternal Son of God, but He has no human Father according to His divine nature. And so the text has elements in it that are a type of the divine nature of Jesus. That's first. Second, when this says He had neither beginning of days nor end of life, 
It just means his birth and death were not recorded in Scripture. It doesn't literally mean Melchizedek had no birth or, or death. It means they're not there. It's not part of the story. And that fact tells us something greater. The fact that it's not in the narrative of Genesis tells us something about Jesus, which is that Christ is eternal. He is everlasting to everlasting. No beginning and no end. Third, this says that Melchizedek was, is one, you see it in verse 3, resembling the Son of God. Now some say, well, that proves it. Clearly, this is Jesus. This is a Son of God because it says right there. But of course, if Melchizedek was Jesus, then why wouldn't it just say Melchizedek is the Son of God? It doesn't. It says one resembling the Son of God. He resembles Jesus. That's two people. And the word resembling means Melchizedek is a type or shadow. He looks like Christ. Something about the narrative about Melchizedek looks like Jesus. Fourth, Hebrews 6.20, referring to Psalm 110, verse 4, says that Jesus is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, if Melchizedek was actually Jesus, this would be saying that Jesus is after the order of Jesus, which would seem very strange, wouldn't it? Make no sense. Melchizedek has to be a different from Jesus for Jesus to be after the order of Melchizedek. If Melchizedek were Christ, we'd expect to say something like Jesus is a high priest because he was Melchizedek. See? But that's not what it says. Fifth, if you'll look at one more thing, down at verse 8, it says, in the one case, and this is talking about the Levites, you can go read it on your own, but in the one case, that is a Levitical priesthood, tithes are received by mortal men. It's true, isn't it, in the Old Covenant? Paid tithes to the Levites by mortal men. But in the other case, and this is talking about Melchizedek, tithes are received by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Now, some have pointed to that verse, and they've said, well, look, Melchizedek, who's a mortal man, is contrasted with someone who's immortal. Therefore, Melchizedek must be Jesus and not a mere man. But look carefully at verse 8. It says, it is testified that he lives. It's about the text, what it says in the Old Testament about him. Now, nowhere in the Old Testament does it say Melchizedek lives forever. doesn't say it. Instead, this is about what's not recorded in, in Genesis 14. The account of Melchizedek doesn't record any beginning or ending of days. All that is testified of him in the Old Testament is he's alive. And that's the point the author of Hebrews is making. And so what's happening here is Hebrews is picking up on an Old Testament figure and saying there is a shadow of a greater reality there, a pattern that is manifest in something greater, and the greater is Jesus. And so I submit Melchizedek was a type of Christ and not Christ himself. Just consider how he's a type of Christ. We've already looked at it. He, Melchizedek's a king of Salem. Well, Christ is the king of Jerusalem, the true city of God, the people of God, he's our king. He conquers our hearts, doesn't he, by grace? Wins us to himself. He teaches us and leads us gently. He yokes us to himself. He rules us for our good, defends us from all his enemies and our enemies. He gives us his good law. 
the commandments to guide our lives under grace, the very definition of love to God and love to men. He shows us, he rules us as a king. He's also a priest. Melchizedek was a priest. Jesus is a priest. Christ is a priest of his people. How so? Well, he identified with us. That's what good priests do. They identify. And then he made self-sacrifice, and he prays. That's what priests do. He sacrificed himself for us, and he ascended, and now he always prays for us. And he feeds our souls with refreshing food, the food of his very own life by faith through his spirit. And so Melchizedek was a priest king and is a type of Christ, the greater and true priest king. But now I'd like us to just take one step back and we need to think about what is a type? What is typology? Well, it, I don't know what you think of what it means or what, you, what your mind imagines when you hear the word type. But basically, it is recognizing patterns. And it uses later revelation to see the fullness of the pattern that you can see more clearly when you look back at earlier revelation. An earlier pattern becomes clear that it's a pattern in light of later revelation. Here's what Mitchell Chase says. He defines typology like this. A biblical type is a person, an office, a place, an institution, an event, or thing in salvation history that anticipates, shares, or corresponds with, escalates toward, and resolves in its antitype. You say, okay, I don't know what all that means. Well, I want to show you. Let's, let's, let's think of it like this. When we read the Bible, there's a first-level literal meaning, interpretation. But there, there can also be a Christological level and then a last-day, next-age level and then a practical level for the church. It's all one meaning. It means one thing, and yet the meaning has a manifold fullness to it. So consider it with Melchizedek. There's a literal level, a Christological level, an eschatological or last day level, and then a fourth practical level. So consider the literal level of Melchizedek in Genesis 14. If you just read that narrative, what's happening? All you see is happening is this. Melchizedek is a, is a foil to Keto Laomer in the narrative. Melchizedek is a good king contrasted with the bad kings. And Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek out of faith in God's promise instead of receiving spoils from a pagan king. Therefore, God gets all the glory. That's what the text says at its first literal level. But second, we've seen there is a Christological level. We can't stop with a literal level. We have to say, no, this is a, a shadow of something greater. Melchizedek was a priest king. Well, Christ is a greater priest king. We're supposed to see that when we read the Old Testament. Why? Because Moses did write Genesis, but the Spirit wrote the whole Bible. And he is installing patterns for us to see as a whole Bible fleshes out the fullness of his purpose in Jesus. Third, consider the eschatological level of Melchizedek. If we read Hebrews, we'll see that the book of Hebrews constantly reminds us that Christ is a priest and king who ushers us into the heavenly kingdom of peace and life and communion with God. What does Hebrews teach? 
The earthly temple was a shadow. The earthly priests are only a copy. But the reality is Christ in the heavenly temple. And so the eschatological level is that the, the city of peace over which Melchizedek is king is really heaven. It's the church now, but it's ultimately a heavenly peace that Melchizedek is pointing us to. Then fourth, consider the practical level. You say, well, what has this got to do with how we're to think and live? Well, if Christ is our high priest, then we have to approach God through Jesus, directly through Him. We're not saved by the old covenant system of the priesthood or the sacrifices. This is what Hebrews is literally telling us. You better not go back to those sacrificial systems. Do not go back to the old covenant priesthood. That's a shadow Go to Jesus, the reality. That's the point of Melchizedek, too, is that Christ is the greater reality. We're not saved by rituals or works, but only through the blood of Jesus. And so the reason I wanted to do that was to show you that Hebrews is doing something big with types and teaching us how to read the Bible. This is crucial to get. Because there's many people today who don't believe in reading the Bible the way the Bible reads the Bible. There are whole schools of thought that teach this emerged in about the 1800s and this system of interpretation says that you should interpret the Bible in a purely scientific way, purely. And it self-consciously rejects a theological and typological interpretation. This says this, we should read the Bible according to its grammar and history and according to what the human author meant and what the original audience would have understood. Stop. That's it. That's what the Bible means. So we should study the historical background, the meaning of the words in their context, but not look at the whole Bible context of a passage. That's not how the Bible teaches us to read the Bible. So to read the Bible that way, you have to ignore, like the way Hebrews and really the whole New Testament, all the apostles, Jesus himself, interpreted and explained the Old Testament. So I want to read you something uh, from Louis Burkhoff, who wrote a book titled Principles of Biblical Interpretation. Here's what he said. Many writers on hermeneutics, you know what hermeneutics is? It just means theology of interpreting the Bible. Many writers on hermeneutics are of the opinion that the grammatical and historical interpretation meet all of the requirements for the proper interpretation of the Bible, and they have no eye for the special theological character of this discipline. There are others, however, who are conscious of the necessity of recognizing a third element in the interpretation of Scripture, the theological element. So what Burkhoff is saying, and I'm just showing this to say, I'm not the first one to have recognized this in Hebrews, is that there is a literal interpretation, grammatical, historical, and then there's a theological or typological reading of the Scriptures. Augustine put it like this, the old is in the new concealed, the new is in the old, sorry, I said that wrong, the, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. And so that it gets clearer, the Bible explains itself. 
If you're interested in reading more about this, there's a good book by Mitchell Chase titled 40 Questions About Typology and Allegory. Very good. A much more thorough treatment, Patrick Fairbairn uh, wrote a book titled The Typology of Scripture. And then Benjamin Keach was a historic Baptist that I wrote my dissertation on. He wrote a massive volume titled The Types and Metaphors of the Bible. These are early Baptists. This is our tradition who read the Bible the way the Bible does. So why does all this matter? Well, it matters for when you read your, the Bible. How do you understand what it means and are you reading it properly in terms of its fullness? Are you aware there's a bigger story than the obvious literal story that's right in front of your face? Are you thinking of that when you read the Word of God? So I want to give another example. We've already looked at Melchizedek, but let's consider the story of David and Goliath. What does that mean? What is David and Goliath about? Well, let's go through these four levels. First, the literal level. So if you're just reading through 1 Samuel and you come to chapter 17, what do you know? Here's David and Goliath. Well, you know that Israel has not conquered the promised land. They have not. You know they had a terrible king, Saul. And you know that God has replaced Saul already with David, who's going to be king. That's what you know. Saul's a total failure. And so David's battle with Goliath is about Saul's failure and about God raising up David to be the one true king of Israel. And here's what we know. David needs to defeat God's enemies. If he's really going to be a king and is worth his medal, then he needs to win this battle. What does that tell us? This is not just a battle. This is not any ordinary battle, like a battle you might have in your life, or even a battle like we see happening around the world right now. This is a covenantal battle. It's about obtaining the promises of God, keeping His commandments, driving out the enemy, and dwelling in the promised land. There's two representatives that fight this battle. One is in the place of God's enemies, and the other is in the place of God's people. You have the Philistines over here, and you have Goliath, their giant champion who has all the traditional articles and instruments of war, massive sword and shield and armor and whatever, very experienced in war. On the other hand, you have David, whom God has chosen and who willingly goes to fight for Israel, who's cowering. Israel's cowering along with Saul. Saul's like, I can't do it. I'm, I'm terrified. He's not going out there. Saul is afraid. David is lion-hearted and bold, won't even accept Saul's armor because it doesn't fit him, and he's not used to wearing such things, and so he goes out with what he knows, a sling and five stones. And on his first shot, of course, you know the story, he slings a stone knocks Goliath in the head, kills him immediately, <laughs> goes over there and cuts his head off. And what's the story? It's that David was a substitute for his people. The people were afraid and David fought the battle and won. Now at the literal level of interpretation, this proves that David is someone who could be the king of Israel. He did this in front of everybody. 
defeat Israel's enemies, bring the nation into its covenantal inheritance. Now, this already is very different from the common interpretation today of David and Goliath, which many people think, well, David and Goliath, this story is about our need to trust the Lord and fight the giants in our lives. We need to trust the Lord. You may feel unequipped, but you all have giants in your lives. You have anxiety, depression, family problems, money problems. And so be like David, who's brave, who trusts God and kills the giant Goliath. Aren't you emboldened? Look at his example. He won. You can win. You can have the victory, they'll say. Trust God. Take the big step. Fight. Look at David. You'll achieve it with God at your side. You have to trust him, though. That's how this passage is interpreted. But that is the opposite of the point. It's literally the opposite of the point. This is a story about the Old Covenant and God raising up a king to defeat the enemies of his people to preserve the line of promise. And the people of God, that's us, are cowering in fear while the champion defeats the giant. No Israelite would have ever thought that they could be like David and defeat the giant. Not a one would have thought that. They all would have thought, he's our hero. Let's make him king. That's the literal level interpretation. But second, let's consider the Christological level, which the way I put it, you can already see it. Clearly, David is a type of Jesus, which the New Testament tells us repeatedly. He's in the line of David. He is the, sh the tender shoot from David. Jesus is, of course, the greater David. And what you have is two peoples at war, the Philistines and the Israelites. Now, in context of the whole Bible, that goes back to Genesis 3, the seed of the serpent is going to try to crush the seed of the woman. This is an old story. It's playing out right here. The Philistines and the Israelites. Goliath represents Satan, the devil, because he's the serpent. And David represents Jesus. But David is a substitute for his people. It's supposed to see it that way. He literally is a substitute. David fights and kills the giant and points to how Jesus is victorious over Satan. Christ died on the cross, satisfied the justice of God, defeating Satan and the powers of darkness. And at the Christological level, the story of David and Goliath is about penal substitutionary atonement and Christ the victor over the powers of darkness. Now, as readers of this story... We're supposed to identify with Israel, not David. We are guilty sinners. You think you have what it takes to overcome your guilt? You're going to go fight your real enemy? Your real enemy, you may be depressed, and I hope that you can grow through that, but your real enemy is your sin and Satan and the temptations of the world. That's my real enemy too. You have what it takes to overcome your guilt? No, we need someone to fight for us. In our place, we would be crushed by Satan and the opposing forces if this battle were ours. But Jesus, our hero, fights the battle for us in our place while all we do is cower and watch. 
So there we've considered the Christological level, but consider the eschatological or last day level. The Bible teaches there will be a final battle between Christ and Satan. Do you know that? There will be. It's not just the cross. That's the beginning. I mean, that is the beginning. Jesus is going to come back and he will vanquish Satan and the world. He'll wage warfare against the powers of darkness. He'll defeat the dragon, the land beast, the sea beast, the city of Babylon, which are all represented here by the Philistines. And one day Christ will cast Satan into hell forever and the devil will be defeated never to emerge again. And we will dwell with Jesus in perfect security in the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, whose gates never close because it has no enemies. And all our warfare will be ended and we will live in joy and peace and he'll wipe every tear away from our eyes. That's the eschatological level of interpretation of David and Goliath. But fourth, consider the practical level. How should we apply this? What should we do with it? Well, we shouldn't dare think we can defeat any of our enemies ourselves. Rather, we have to trust Jesus. We have to submit to Him and His Word by faith instead of trusting ourselves or our own wisdom. And the way we know what the practical level of interpretation is of any, any story is by reading the clear commands and teachings of the Bible. And we read the less clear in light of the clear. And so the practical level interpretation means we have to put on the whole armor of God. This is spiritual warfare, Ephesians 6. Not, not the arm of the flesh, not the weapons of the world, which is what Paul says, you're not going to defeat the true enemy by the weapons of this world. You need to put on the armor of God. You have to trust in Christ and His righteousness. You have a breastplate of righteousness. You have the helmet of salvation and eternal assurance of eternal life that guards your mind. The shield of faith to defend against the fiery darts of the devil, Goliath, which are attacks and accusations, lies. And how do you confront that? With the word or with, by faith in the word, the shield of faith, faith in what God says. We put on the belt of, of peace with God and peace with others. We walk in this world under grace with the gospel of peace shod upon our feet and upon our lips. And we use the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, to defeat the lies of the devil and to grow by grace through faith more and more after the likeness of Jesus. And so that's the practical level of interpretation. Isn't that how we do spiritual warfare? Isn't that how we fight as Christians? And so we use the Bible's clear teaching to inform our practical applications of stories rather than coming up with false ethics and moralisms and especially moralisms that mostly conform to the spirit of our age. It's about spiritual warfare and faith in Jesus to fight our true enemies, Satan, the world, but most of all, our own flesh. And so there we've seen, first, that Melchizedek was a king, second, that he was a priest, and third, that he was a type of Christ, and we should be reading our Bibles typologically, because that's how the New Testament teaches us to read them. And so with that, let's close with prayer. Lord, we thank you again for your love and grace for Jesus, who indeed vanquished the foe, who battled 
against all of our enemies on the cross and then died and rose having vanquished the foe, promising us an eternal inheritance, giving us his spirit that we might fight the good fight while we remain in this world by grace through faith, one day at a time, hoping for eternal glory. Thank you for your word, for its depth, its beauty, its unity. Help us to be diligent students of it. In Jesus' name, amen.